It's good to be back with you all again uh, this Lord's Day. And it's good to have my wife Beth with us. Sometimes she's able to come. She's a, she's a nurse and some, some uh, Sunday she works, but not today. So good, good to be here. Now, pa- Pastor Blake told me that if they had plexiglass up, that I could take my uh, mask off while I'm preaching. So I hope that is okay. I, uh, it's hard for me to preach with a mask and my glasses fog up uh, reading my notes. So, I, you know, this reminds me of the Pope Mobile, um, but uh, I'm not the Pope, so uh, you'll be glad to know that. Let me get my uh, earpiece here. Um, let, let's pray. Lord, you are uh, good to us. As we just read from Psalm 19, your word is so good. It's alive, it's, it's active, it's powerful. And we are going to see that again now as we look into it. Lord, please keep anything false from my lips. And um, I pray your truth would flow now. And that you would give everyone in this room and on YouTube ears to hear and hearts to respond to your truth. Change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. The late Dr. Haddon Robinson was the former president of um, Denver Seminary, and before that he was the professor of homiletics at Dallas Seminary. He tells the true story of a letter he received years ago from a young man in a Texas prison serving 10 to 20 years for attempted rape. This young man was also a Christian. In fact, he had been one of Dr. Robinson's uh, seminary students at Dallas. When he left seminary, he left with great gifts and great promise. He pastored two different churches, and both of them, humanly speaking, were successful congregations. In his second church, he demonstrated the gift of evangelism, and many people in that church were led to Christ through this man's witness. He was also a careful student of the scriptures, and numerous people in the church testified again and again that they could sense the power and the presence of God when this man preached. He had a discipleship ministry. He left a lasting impact on many people in that church. In fact, when his crime was discovered and he admitted his guilt, uh, the men in the church raised over $20,000 for his legal defense. And yet, uh, now he is in a Texas penitentiary. In one dark hour of temptation, he fell into the abyss. He ruined his reputation, destroyed his ministry, and left an ugly stain on the testimony of Christ in that community. You know, when I first heard that story, and I hear others like it, I, I found myself wrestling with all sorts of questions and emotions. What happens in a person's life who does that? What caused him to turn his back on all that he had been given in life and in ministry? And I realized that when I asked that question, I'm not simply asking about a man incarcerated in uh, Texas for attempted rape. I'm asking about myself as well. I'm asking about numerous men and women who have graduated from seminary and yet in some act of disobedience had destroyed the ministry to which they had given themselves. What is it that causes someone to mortgage his ministry and pay such a high price for sin? 
What is it that lures us to destruction? And it's not just a question that those of us who are preachers and missionaries must face. All of you here this morning must face it as well, because if you are a human and you have a pulse, the temptation to sin dogs your path daily and it trips you at every turn. All of us struggle with temptation, do we not? And if we think we are beyond a certain sin, we are one step closer to it. That is why 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be of sober-minded, be watchful. Another translation I like says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Whether you realize it or not, all of us are in this intense spiritual war. And in our passage from God's Word this morning, we meet our number one enemy, Satan, for the very first time in the Bible. He is a very clever, powerful being who is out to destroy people. And thus, at some point in our lives, the sooner the better. All of us must ask ourselves the question, how does the tempter do his work? How does he come to us? How does he deceive us? And how does he destroy people? We find the answers to those questions in our text today. In Genesis 3, we have a case study in temptation. And it is here that we see how the enemy of our souls causes us to stumble into sin. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and also locate the sermon notes on the back of your bulletin. Genesis 3 is one of the most foundational chapters in the entire Bible. It is here that we find many of the seeds of, and cardinal doctrines of our faith. For example, it is here that we see the first human sin, also known as original sin, which has caused all of the pain and heartache and suffering and sorrow, disease and death throughout human history. It all started right here in this chapter. As I said earlier, we meet our number one spiritual enemy, the devil, for the very first time in this chapter. It is here that we see some of the specific physical and spiritual ramifications of sin that have troubled all of us. From our fear of snakes, to hiding from God, pain in childbirth, tension in marriage, frustrations at work, failure at gardening, etc., etc. Beth, I think our gardens have had a double curse on them all of our years of trying. And it is here that we get a glimpse of God's attitude towards the guilty sinner, as well as his gracious provision for our great need. And it's because of what happens in this chapter that necessitated the first Christmas. It's what happens here that caused our Lord Jesus to come down to earth as a baby and eventually die on the cross. So Genesis 3 is a pivotal chapter in God's overall plan for mankind. Now before we look at this case study and temptation, we need to realize that there are some significant differences between the key players in these verses, Adam and Eve, and the rest of us. For example, Adam and Eve did not have poisoned blood flowing through their veins. They were not born with a sin nature like you and me. That's why we read at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, that Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. This first sinless couple rode the pinnacle of innocence and openness. Clothing had never occurred to them. There was nothing to hide or protect. There was no shame. The gravitational pull towards self does not exist at the end of chapter 2. 
And not only were they perfectly innocent, but so was their environment. There's nothing in their surroundings that would lead them away from God. There are no risque billboards, no internet pornography or chat rooms, no flirtatious work associates, no drug dealers standing on the corner, no ungodly movies or television shows or sinful music lyrics. So you have two perfect people in a perfect marriage living in the perfect environment, and yet our enemy is still successful in his evil schemes. Now, as we watch the way the tempter comes to Eve, we recognize that while this, while this story takes place in the ancient past, it's as up-to-date as this morning's news. It's as current as the temptation you faced last night, or the one you face at home, or at work, or school, or on a date. The scene has changed, but Satan's methodology has not. And the first thing we notice in the tempter's methodology is he comes in disguise. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The King James Version says the serpent was more subtle. Keep in mind, this is before the curse. This is before the serpent crawls uh, on his belly upon the ground. There are no rattlers on his tail to warn of approaching poison. There's nothing that would make Eve feel alarmed. When Satan comes to you, he does not come in the form of a coiled snake. He does not come with the roar of a lion or the wail of a siren waving a red flag. No, he, he slides into your life. He comes and he seems almost like a comfortable companion at first. Initially, there's nothing to dread or fear. That's why 2 Corinthians 11.14 says this, and I quote, And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. <laughs> he pretends to be an ambassador of truth. Sometimes he even poses as a minister of God. So one thing is clear. When the enemy comes to attack you, he comes in disguise. Sometimes people do not know the devil is there even when he has them by the throat. And not only is he disguised in his person, he's also disguised in his purpose. Satan does not announce to Eve, I'm on an official visit to tempt you. He doesn't tell a person right up front, I'm here to destroy your life and damn your soul. I'm here to ruin your marriage or destroy your reputation or lure you into a life of destructive addiction. Now, he's much more subtle than that. In fact, we read here, in this particular instance, he poses as a religious devil. Remember, he masquerades as an angel of light. He wants to talk theology with Eve. He wants to discuss the Word of God. That seems innocent enough, doesn't it? Please notice how the enemy's method is shrewd, calculated, and disguised. It's not a direct denial of God's commandment, not yet anyway. That comes later on. At this point, he simply causes Eve to question what God had said, trying to raise doubts in her mind. If you notice the end of verse 1, he says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Look at Eve's response, verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat of the fruit of the trees that, that is the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Eve desperately needs to work on her scripture memory skills, doesn't she? She changes our Lord's original command by adding to it. Not only were we forbidden to eat of the tree, we must not even touch it, Eve says. But God never said anything about touching the tree, at least in the original command we have here in Genesis. Granted, it was certainly best that they not touch the tree, but that was not part of the original command. You see, Eve is guilty of what many of us conservative evangelicals and legalists do at times. Without even realizing it, we try to become more righteous than God, stricter than He is. We have all of God's commands, but we think we are holier if we go beyond His commands, and we add some man-made rules to His commands, and there's destruction in that. That is precisely the religion of the scribes and Pharisees that our Lord Jesus so strongly condemned in his day. They had entire books of extra rules and regulations that just weighed people down. And they could never obey them. So Eve says to the tempter, You know we can't eat of that tree. We can't even touch it. What Satan has done, of course, very subtly, is he's gotten Eve to focus her mind on that single tree. That's another part of his strategy. Here she had all these other trees in the garden from which she could eat. And yet those trees don't matter at this point. All she can think about is this one tree in the center of the garden that God had prohibited. Instead of enjoying all of the privileges that we do have in Christ and being thankful for them, we begin to think about and dwell upon and lust after the one thing we can't do. We become consumed with forbidden fruit. And as you know, forbidden fruit comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? From another person's spouse, to a line of cocaine, to that first cigarette, to a bigger home that we can't afford, to the secret relationship on the internet, etc., etc. So Satan comes in disguise and he conceals who he is and he conceals what he wants to do. And without Eve even realizing it, he has gotten her to question the command of God and focus on the forbidden fruit. The next step in his strategy is much more bold. He openly attacks the word of God and the character of God. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, or you will not surely die. So in essence, what Satan is saying here is that God is a liar and God is not just. He will not follow through on his promise to punish you. Surely you don't believe that you will die, do you, Eve? Come now, a bit of fruit. Surely die. That's just a bit of oriental exaggeration God is using to get your attention. But he doesn't mean that. Surely die. Come now, Eve. You are far too sophisticated to believe that the God who gave you this marvelous garden and all of these trees and this bountiful, delicious fruit is going to get that excited by you taking one piece of fruit from this one tree. Surely die. You don't believe that, do you? God doesn't mean that, Eve. He certainly doesn't mean that. It's just exaggeration. How easily we fall into that trap. How easily we have come to believe in the doctrine of inerrancy about the Bible as a holy book. But on this particular issue, that is an issue between me and God. He doesn't really mean it when he says, you will surely die. For thousands of years, Satan has repeated that lie. 
It is the idea in many modern novels where the author is able to weave the plot that people live in deep disobedience to God, but at the end of the book, everything turns out okay. It's the theme of many modern movies and television shows where the characters live in rebellion against God and immorality is rampant, and yet they live happily ever after and have lots of fun along the way. There are few, if any, negative consequences for their sins. Surely they are getting away with it, or so it seems. I'm curious. How do you feel about these warnings of disobedience that fill the Bible? What do you think about them? Does God mean it when he says that those who live after the flesh shall die? Does God mean it? These words in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, and I quote, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Are those words true? Does God really mean it when he says the sexually immoral and the adulterers he will judge? How do you feel about it? We don't like these stern warnings from God, do we? We love God's mercy, but we don't like His justice. At least His justice on us. Justice on other evildoers, sure. So Satan comes in disguise, and he attacks God's word, and he attacks God's justice. He continues his attack on God's character in verse 5. Look at it. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan is doing here is attacking God's goodness. In essence, what he's saying is, you, you know why God gave you that command, Eve? He gave you that command because he wants to spoil your fun. The reason he gave you that command is he wants to keep you on a tight leash. He wants you to know that he is in control. He doesn't want you to have the excitement that life offers other people. You're missing out, Eve. God knows that when you eat of this tree, you will be like Him and you'll know good and evil. You'll have amazing experiences that you can't have any other way. This is another lie of the devil. He gets us to believe that we're missing something in life if we obey the commands of this book. you got tons of young adults and teenagers today who believe that if they remain sexually pure, and they don't go out and party with their friends or they take a stand for Jesus on campus and their lives will be boring, unhappy, and unfulfilled when the exact opposite is true. They view God as this cosmic killjoy who does not want us to have any fun and so He gives us all of these commands. In other words, they question the goodness of God. That's exactly what Satan is getting Eve to do in this passage. And what's the result of his clever, deceptive strategy? You already know. Look at it, verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We see here that the forbidden fruit had a lot of good qualities and Eve used several of her senses to 
decide whether or not to eat. First of all, she saw that the fruit was good for food. Translated, it tasted delicious. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. There is pleasure in sin for a season. Right? Forbidden fruit tastes delicious at first until it turns sour in our mouths. Secondly, it was aesthetically beautiful, pleasing to the eye, verse 6 says. And you know how many women care about the appearance of things, right? Women add so much beauty to our lives and to our homes for those of us who are men. So a bowl of this fruit would look beautiful as a centerpiece on the dining room table. And finally, it was functional. It would give Eve much needed wisdom, or so she thought. Imagine finding food that tastes delicious, looks beautiful, is healthy, and would benefit the mind and body in some way. You can see why Eve took a bite of this fruit, right? And then she gave some to her husband. Where was Adam this whole time? Many scholars suggest that Adam's first sin was not eating the fruit but rather the sense of silence and passivity. Apparently, he is standing right there the whole time listening to the conversation between the serpent and Eve. And he silently watched her disobey God. Why didn't Adam try to stop her? Why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he remind her of what God had really said? And such has been the plight of millions of men down through the centuries. We have failed to step up and be the spiritual leaders in our marriages and families. We have failed to take the lead to protect our wives and children from Satan's evil schemes. Oh man, if that describes you this morning, could I plead with you to change that with God's help? It is time for us men to stop being silent and passive when it comes to spiritual leadership. It is time for us to step up and initiate spiritual oversight of our wives and children. Initiate prayer times. Initiate family devotions. Warn our loved ones about the sinful schemes of the enemy. And on top of that, Adam sinned willfully. He was not deceived like Eve was. The Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear in 1 Timothy 2.14, and I quote, And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Eve handed Adam a piece of forbidden fruit and he ate it, knowing it was sinful. He was not tricked like Eve was. He had seen, seen Eve take a piece of fruit and nothing happened to her, so he sinned willfully, assuming nothing would happen to him. Boy, was he wrong. So at this point, everything is upside down. Eve followed the snake, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. And the result of this original human sin was devastating. Indeed, God did fulfill His promises to punish their sin. On the very day Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they died right there under the tree. Not physically, but spiritually. Before this sin, they enjoyed deep oneness and fellowship with God. Afterwards, they were alienated and separated from Him. Their innocence evaporated instantly. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts as they go running and hiding from God. Their physical bodies began to age, and they would eventually go to their earthly graves. And this original sin affected more than just two people. Romans 5 verse 12 in the New Testament, and I quote, 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. Adam's sin plunged the entire human race into spiritual darkness, death, and alienation from God. And the problem was so severe that the only solution was for God to send His one and only Son, Jesus, to die as a perfect sacrifice and atonement to pay for the sins of Adam and Eve and everyone else who would repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ as Lord, Savior, and sin bearer. So there was an incredible price that was paid for Adam and Eve's sin. I'd like to close today with several practical lessons for your life this week. My brothers and sisters in Christ, all of us are engaged in this intense spiritual war. And even though our enemy has been defeated on the cross, he's still very clever and powerful. You know, when I talk to Christians about uh, Satan and the Satanology, if you will, angelology. I see at least two extremes of Christians today. There's one group of Christians who give Satan way too much power. They see a demon under every rock. I mean, their car is demon-possessed. Their washing machine is demon-possessed. And I've had a few cars like that, but I didn't attribute it to demon possession. And it's just almost like Satan is... Almost equal to God in power. He's causing all of this havoc and God can do nothing to stop him. And then there's another group of Christians who take Satan too lightly. They hardly give him a thought. They downplay his activity. And I believe the Bible would have us in the middle of those two extremes. Let's make no mistake about it. For sure, Satan is the god of this age with a little g. But our god is the god of the universe with a capital G. And there's no comparison between the two. Amen? Amen. And yet, the god with a little g is still very powerful. And lesson number one, since Satan attacks us in disguise... We must be on constant alert for his evil schemes. Resist him. Again, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Some of you are flirting with the enemy right now and you don't even realize it. Like I said before, he doesn't come in the form of a, a coiled snake or carrying a vial of poison. He doesn't say, give me 30 minutes of your time and I will destroy your life. Sometimes he comes in the form of a beautiful, alluring woman or a kind, understanding co-worker. Sometimes he slides into your life through a questionable TV show or an ungodly lyrics of a song or uh, uh, through the internet or through uh, some, some game you play online. Sometimes he comes in the form of a slick preacher. Or he uses uh, seemingly innocent peers at school or work or the party scene to entice us into sin. It starts out so seemingly innocent and before you know it, you're focused on the forbidden fruit and you have taken a bite. And after a few bites, it becomes a habit and then an addiction and then destruction. 
Since Satan comes in disguise, we must be on constant alert of his evil schemes. That's one of the key weapons in our spiritual arsenal is prayer. We need to be continually crying out to God for prayer, asking him to give us wisdom and insight into the enemy's schemes, right? Sometimes the enemy's schemes are very obvious, but at other times they're not obvious at all. Lesson number two. Contrary to Satan's lie, God is just and he will punish those who disobey him, respect him. Eve did not believe that here in Genesis 3, and it could be some of you here today don't believe that. Some of you are involved in sin right now and you think you're getting away with it because nothing bad has happened to you yet. My friend, don't be deceived by the devil. Oh, it is true, you may not pay for your sin immediately. And in fact, sometimes a person doesn't suffer consequences for months or even years later. And sometimes God is gracious, but He is not mocked. You will reap what you sow eventually. And of course, there's the final judgment day when every one of us will stand before God to give an account. And the pleasure that comes from sin is not nearly as great as the pain that comes from its consequences. Say that again. The pleasure that comes from sin is not nearly as great as the pain that comes from its consequences. I can say amen to that because I've experienced that many times and so have all of you. Some of you are eating forbidden fruit right now. I would beg you to repent and to confess your sin to God. Find another Christian whom you can trust And confess that sin to them and have them pray for you and hold you accountable. That's part of the value of the body of Christ. I think we Christians can be tempted to take our sins too lightly because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, the Bible says that all of our sins are forgiven and under the blood of Christ. And as a result, we will never face any of God's wrath and condemnation for our sins. And our Heavenly Father keeps loving us unconditionally even when we disobey Him. We did nothing to earn His love, thus we can do nothing to lose His love. Thank you, Lord. But make no mistake about it, God also lovingly disciplines His children when we sin. In fact, Hebrews 12 says His discipline is a sign of His love for us, and His discipline can be quite painful sometimes, can it not? And thus we need to respect him and have a healthy fear of his discipline and avoid the forbidden fruit. Lesson number three. Contrary to Satan's lie, God is good and his commandments are always good for us. Trust him and obey. God's words and God's rules are not designed to restrict our freedom, but rather to unleash us to live life to the fullest. Now some of you here today may be questioning that. You question whether or not it is best for you to obey God in, in a particular situation in your life. Perhaps you are single and you have these strong sexual urges and you think to yourself, how can God expect me to restrain myself? Certainly one bite of that forbidden fruit would not be that bad. And maybe you're at a workplace where people who are promoted the quickest are those who are dishonest and unethical or workaholics who neglect their families. And you know what God's word says, but you're questioning it. 
Is it really best for me to remain honest and ethical and pure? Is it really best for me to keep a healthy work-life balance and not be a workaholic, even if it means losing that promotion or worse, losing my job? And yet in both of those situations and hundreds more like them, the answer is the same. God is good and even though obeying Him might be painful at times and costly, the truths of His Word are good for you. His biblical guidelines are best for your life. Trust Him. Obey Him. And again, we need His grace to do that every day, don't we? Lord, help us. Now, as a casual reader of this story in Genesis 3, you might be tempted to say, a piece of fruit? Surely not a piece of fruit. You're not going to tell me that Eve sinned with a piece of fruit in a fruit orchard. You're not going to tell me that That's why Adam sinned, and that's why murder came into their family. You're not going to tell me that a piece of fruit damned the entire human race and separated us from God. No. Not a piece of fruit. It was a disobedience to God's word and a distrust of God's character. The fruit is at the periphery. The sin is at the center. Whenever you come to deny and doubt the word of God and the goodness of God and the justice of God and you think that you can take one bite of forbidden fruit and it won't hurt you so you try to find your greatest needs outside of God you've fallen into the same trap as Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and it's only a matter of time before you fall. That's what caused that gifted preacher in Texas to destroy his promising life and ministry and wind up in a Texas penitentiary. You see, if um, Satan had come to Eve early one morning and said, Look, sign this piece of paper and say you're done with God. She would have never signed it. (laughs) When Satan comes, he never comes dragging the chains that will confine us. He comes bringing a crown that he says will ennoble us. He comes offering us pleasure like we've never felt before, not even with God. And it's a pleasure with no negative consequences, or so he says. In fact, the sin will fill all of the desires of our heart apart from God. And that is where we find destruction. When we love God's gifts more than we love the giver, and when we try to find our deepest joy and satisfaction in people and things and activities other than God, that is idolatry. It is the root of all sin, and every single one of us have been guilty of that, have we not? Hear me well this morning. I'm not bringing you some kind of tight religion. Christianity is not mere morality. It's not a matter of towing the line and keeping the rules. Christianity is a personal relationship with God who loves us so much that He gave His one and only Son to die in our place and pay the penalty that our sins deserve so that we could have life to the fullest. And when we humbly acknowledge our sin and our desperate need for forgiveness and repent, and then by faith we trust completely in what Jesus did on the cross as a full payment for all of our sins, then the Bible teaches that we are completely forgiven, cleansed, and adopted into God's family as His precious children. We are reconciled to God. A peace treaty has been signed in blood, the blood of Jesus. God the Holy Spirit then indwells us and He begins to produce in us a standard of righteousness we can never produce on our own. And yet even with God's Word and the Holy Spirit, all of us still fall into sin, do we not? 
How thankful we can be that for those of us who are in Christ, even when we sin, God still loves us and accepts us and forgives us. And because we have His perfect righteousness, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And yet, there are still painful consequences from God's loving discipline. Why do we still fall into sin as believers? The same reason Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. Our faith wanes. And we begin to question God's word and doubt God's character. That's my message to you this morning. This is the strategy our number one enemy, the devil, uh, has used for thousands of years. He comes in disguise. He attacks God's word. And he attacks God's character. Now, wonder Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. He is a liar. The enemy of our souls is a liar. Resist him. He's already a defeated foe. Resist him. He's no match for Christ. Greater is the one who's in us than this evil one in the world. Amen? He's a liar. By the way, a great book for you to read. It's a little, it's a short read. Uh, if you haven't read it already, that will give you some great insight into the schemes of the enemy is C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters. And I would encourage you to read that if you haven't. My sermon title today is A Case Study in Temptation. And the main idea of our text today is, is fairly simple, but it's profound. Satan entices us to sin by coming in disguise and getting us to question God's word and doubt God's character. Say that again. Satan entices us to sin by coming in disguise and getting us to question God's word and doubt God's character. And Lord, please increase our faith and trust in you. Increase our faith and our commitment to the truth of your word. And Lord, would you please give us wisdom to discern the enemy's schemes and then give us grace to resist him standing firm in the faith every day. Because you see that old hymn, the words of that old hymn are so true. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. To find joy in Jesus, there's no other way than to trust and obey. Amen? Amen. God, God take us there. Lord, would you take us there? We are sorry that our faith wanes, my Lord. As your children, our faith wanes sometimes and we begin to question your word and we begin to doubt your character. And Lord, we're sorry about that. Jesus, we're so thankful that you came and you paid a price that you did not owe because we had a price we could not pay. And you've reconciled us back to the Father. And yet, Lord, even though we're your children and you're our Abba, 
You still discipline us when we sin. Give us a healthy fear of your discipline. Help us to realize that there are serious consequences, even as believers, when we sin. And help us to see your book not as a a bunch of rules and regulations, but life-giving truths that unleash us to have life to the fullest. Lord, please take us there. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus in a personal way, would you open their heart and their mind? Would you take the blinders off so they can see? They could see their sin and their need for Jesus. And my Lord, would you bring them to repentance and faith in Christ? Don't let them rest until they find their rest in you. And Lord, we promise to give you every tiny bit of the glory for what you do in us and through us and to us. It's all about you. (laughs) It's all about you. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.